Hello and welcome to the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. From former pro cyclist in the Lance Armstrong era to now international race car driver, it's quite clear that competitive racing is something of a lifelong love for our guest today. He became the first black driver and first American in 40 years to compete full-time in the British Touring Car Championship, with experience also racing in the World Touring Car Championship, Pirelli World Challenge, VLN and TCR Series. But it doesn't stop there. Not only wearing hats as an automotive journalist and presenter for Sky TV's upcoming production of Faster, our talented guest is a former record holder for the renowned Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. Join us as we also hear his perspective on the lack of representation within the motorsport industry. And if you hadn't already guessed, today we will be catching up with the brilliant Rob Holland. If we kick it off then by hearing from you a bit about your journey into the motorsport world and what you do currently. Yeah. So I've I started randomly in the motorsport world. I, I was actually a professional bicycle racer starting off. I uh, came out to Colorado to go to the Olympic Training Center and then to go to CU Boulder uh, to be a cyclist. And I had, I guess, the misfortune of, of showing up in the Lance Armstrong era. And uh, that was obviously uh, lots of drugs. And that was not something that I, was, uh, I, did, I wanted to be a part of. So, um, so I, I quit the sport, and, uh, but I missed being competitive. And I'd always been a bit of a gearhead and said, okay, well, look, you know, let me go play around and I'll, I'll go to Skip Barber Racing School and I'll just kind of, you know, just have a bit of fun on the weekends and, and get a little race car and have, have, have a good time. I then did the Pro Barber Dodge uh, series uh, and then that led to some connections within Dodge. And then they were doing a uh, touring car program in the U.S. Uh, using the Dodge SRT4. And uh, I did a test with them. Turned out I was pretty quick and uh, hired on as a works driver as uh, my rookie year in, in motorsport. Um, so a really bizarre kind of pathway in, um, but, but one that's obviously worked very well for me. Brilliant. So was there sort of like a defining moment that made you consider the switch over to motorsport from bicycle racing? Yeah, when I got a pro contract and someone <laughs> someone said, here, we'll pay you money to do this sport that you plan on paying money for. That was... Uh, it was a little light bulb that went off. I, I <laughs> so it was, um, it, it was random because it was never, you know, you, you always hear the kids in the stories that they started karting when they were six years old and then they went into this and that mm. and this and that. And I was a, you know, late 20 something guy that, you know, really followed motorsport, but had never really been involved in it in any way. Um, so I had no, no pathway into this. And so it was literally as random as you can possibly get. Um, and it was, We've had this I had this talk with a bunch of people. I think that a lot of the things that I learned in cycling um, from a mental aspect of things, just you know, the spatial awareness of having to maneuver around a peloton with 200 other guys and the tactical awareness that you have to have in terms of reading a race and all these things that I had learned from the time I was 12 years old were things that I could easily incorporate into motorsport. And so, and then I think the, obviously the biggest thing was that I had been coached from a very early age. And I think you the more you're coached, the more receptive you are to coaching. So that when I had my guys at Skip Barber saying, okay, do this and do this, I would go out and do this. And they're just like, you know, most of the people that we deal with go and screw up differently. And you were the ones who actually followed the advice. So it was really easy for me to kind of pick everything up and learn and, and kind of, um, you know, I, I just, I, I took to it very, very quickly. So the very funny thing is, is that I have a, a guy who I actually did when I was in doing Skip Barber, guy named Jordan Musser and he was kicking everyone's butts and I was like okay that guy's a real driver he's really good well it turned out he was six-time national karting champion and he turned out to be my teammate uh, when I did some stuff with uh, with GM in the Camaro program years ago um, and still an incredibly quick guy but it was one of those things that I had just thought that you know I had no chance in being competitive with a guy like that and it um, you know those are the things that you know, kind of define your early career is that when you get guys that you kind of set as your bar and then until you get through it, you realize that bar is actually a pretty high bar. And so it was a pretty good, good thing for me to reach for. Yeah, no, definitely. That sounds fantastic. So 
you mentioned obviously starting your professional motor racing career sort of mid-20s we talk a lot about the younger generation and advice for the younger generation and how to bring them up up through the the racing ladder but there are older people with you know dreams and ambitions who already have a career of their own that might not be anything to do with motorsport who who want to get into that industry into that world who you know might have a knack for driving do you have any advice for people like that on getting into into the industry um, I think the biggest thing is just don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. You know, and that that's kind of one of those things that when I had talks early on in my career, everyone was like, oh, well, you're just too old. You know, you, you, you kind of passed. Everyone's looking for that 18, 19, 20 year old to come through and, and set the world on fire. And I, I just didn't listen to any of that. And I think that's the most important thing is, is that there is, there is no definition for what a good driver should be in terms of when they should be in the sport in terms of age or in terms of background or in terms of anything. It's just, you know, you, you, you have a talent, you have a knack for it or, or you don't. And I think if you do have a knack for it, then there's, there shouldn't be any barriers to, to you, you know, achieving what you want to achieve. And did you find any obstacles when you did actually get into the motorsport world because of the fact that you started later? Well, I took to it. The, the, the biggest thing for me was this, the lack of knowledge. You know, I think that, you know, when you start racing at a young age, you build up this like repository of knowledge and it's, and it's everything to do with the sport. I mean, it's, it's car setup and tire pressures and, and how to you know read a racetrack as it's evolving over the course of a weekend and all of these things that I had no idea about. You know, these are things that were kind of foreign to, to cycling. And and I, and the other thing is is that in cycling, I you would ride every single day. And we would go out and, you know, five, four, five, six hours every single day, seven days a week. And I just assumed that in the motorsport world it's the same thing. Like I would be in a race car every single day and I would be there three or four hours a day. And it was really difficult for me to not to, to, to not have to be able to do that. And so I think the knowledge for me was was a huge thing. Um, but, you know, in terms of age, yeah, I mean, there was definitely some things that you, you bump up to. I mean, I think there's everyone has their biases, you know, whether it's age or race or sex or whatever it is. And with various people, it's different things. And so, yeah, you, you run into, and I, that's for me, you know, other than not being a female, you know, the age and the race thing, um, you definitely, there, there are things that you run up to and then you just have to figure out how to get around them or how to marginalize that person and, and, you know, just continue doing what you want to do. And what were some of your highlights of your career? <laughs> um, it's been a long one. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, you think back to the beginning and my first pro podium was, was awesome. Um, that was at Road America back in was 2005, I think. Um, and the, the guy who I beat to the, the last step on the podium was a guy named Randy Post, who is probably one of the top American drivers of all time. Um, and I managed to hold him off for 50 minutes. So not only was it, you know, the fact that I was able to make my first pro podium, but to be able to do it in such a fashion, battling with one of the guys who, you know, I consider one of the top guys in the sport. You know, that, that is something that will always, always stand out to me. And then I think just my my ability to to have kind of packed up everything and moved over to Europe and um, and do the stuff that I did in in British Touring Car, World Touring Car, and at the Nurburgring, um, you know, all of my successes and even my failures there, I think were were things that you know I always remember because it was such a huge step, and they're not you know very few Americans have made that step, you know, so you know to be able to to be the first American in World Touring Car Championship. You know, even though it wasn't the best of race weekends and the best of circumstances, I got thrown in the car. You know, I got the call Thursday night and got thrown into the car Friday morning, first time ever, um, you know, up against the best guys in the world. Uh, still, the fact that I was able to be, you know, in the mix of things by the end, you know, I, I still take that away as a, as a huge accomplishment. Um, and then my last bit, I think, would be Pikes Peak. You know, it's, it's something, it's, it's a legendary race, it's a legendary mountain, and the fact that it's, you know, an hour away from my house. Um, that's something that even before I was in, in motorsports, back when I was cycling, the Olympic training center is at the base of Pikes Peak. And so you would always hear about the race and, you know, the guys would go up and see it and stuff. And, um, and then to, to be able to be a record holder at Pikes Peak was, you know, I, for sure, that's something I'll, I'll take with me. That's a great question, Ariana, because uh, it's always great to hear someone reflect on their achievements. So you talked a lot about what you've achieved in motorsport, but also you did mention sort of failure as such. And I think that's also important to touch on so that we can learn from from any mistakes. What was the biggest lesson that, that you've learned during your career so far? 
I, mean, I think it goes to as failures overall. I mean, a lot of people see failure as a setback and I don't, right? You know, as long as you've given a hundred percent and can take something away, then I think that, that it's not necessarily a complete failure. You know, we go, I, I mean, the biggest, I guess the two biggest ones were, you know, obviously some of the things that we did in British Touring Car, um, you know, we jumped off the deep end. Um, I hadn't been to any of the tracks in the UK. So my first laps at, you know, Brands Hatch were FP1 and, you know, against guys who had been doing, you know, have been racing at Brands Hatch for 30, 40 years. Um, you know, so that's always going to be a tall ask, even if, if all the equipment's equal and whatever. And, and then obviously the, the, the teams that I raced for weren't the, the front runners. I mean, they were great teams and I, I, you know, and I really thank them for giving me the opportunities, you know, so you, you kind of set yourself up with, with a whole bunch of, of mountains to climb and just to be able to get through that and get a good result and get some points. I think for me, you know, it, it, that's a huge takeaway. And I know that given the right equipment, given the, the right time and the effort, you know, I know I could, could be running at the front of the field in British Touring Car and we're not done there yet. You know, I hope to be back there at some point in time soon and, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be, be able to be a bit more competitive. Well, we hope to see you back there as well. You mentioned that you made the move from America to Europe. How did you actually find that? Were there any major differences that you encountered? Yeah, it's everything. <laughs> it's, it, I mean... <laughs> It's it's funny. So the once again going out. You know, my first race was at Snederson um, in 2012, and uh, I had never been to the track before. So my first laps in in a British touring car really, and at Snederson were were FP1, and, and you know I was it's a right hand drive car as opposed to a left hand drive car. It's a circuit you haven't been to. Yeah. Um, it's the way the races are run. Um, they're just little things here and there that, you know, you, you know, at that point in time in my career, I'd been racing, you know, for probably about 10 years and you, you just get very comfortable with the way things are running. You just understand, okay, you know, this is how pit lane works and this is how all the flagging systems work and this is how the sessions are run and nothing is the same <laughs> and you go over there and it's a bit, you know, you're a bit fish out of water for a bit. You're, you're kind of searching around going, okay, well, I don't really understand this. Should I do this? Should I, should I not do this? And, and uh, the clerk of the course, you know, I, we, we've had a few conversations after, after FP1, FP2, just because of, you know, just not quite understanding how things works. And, and, and everybody was real nice and understanding that, you know, look, this is all new for me, but it is very funny going from, you know, I, I'd left, uh, the works Volvo team in SRO world challenge. And it's very awkward to go from a works driver to a, basically a full blown rookie going into a new series. So it's, it's, it was a very weird experience for me, but, um, but it, once again, it's one of those amazing experiences that then as a driver, it just kind of rounds you out overall. And I think, you know, if you, once again, going back to your questions of, of what we can talk about with, with maybe drivers who are, you know, wanting to come into the sport is, is do everything you know, drive everything you can drive, you know, don't, don't let that say, okay, well, you're a road racer or no, you're a rally driver or you're an oval racer or whatever. It's just drive stuff. It's just, it's, I love driving, you know, anything, anyone wants to put me in, I will drive. So um, I think that's a, a really, really good takeaway from everything I've done. And what's been your favorite series or car that you've, you've driven in? Ooh, um, well, favorite car is whatever someone's paying me to drive. At the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, but honestly, I've had, I've had great success with Audi as a brand over the years for, for whatever reason. We ran the, the TTRS that we ran at the VLN race at the Nürburgring. We did the 25 hours of Thunderhill with that. And then I came and broke the front wheel drive record at Pikes Peak, all with that same car. So, uh, you know, with all the stuff I've done with it, there's a, there's a huge fondness to that. And we, we actually, um, we, had, we had a lot of good fun. You know, when we did 25 hours of Thunderhill, it was the only front wheel drive car to ever win that race. And I got uh, got a call from the head of Audi Motorsport at the time, and uh, he said, "You know, Audi has won many 24-hour races, but we have never won a 25-hour race." So, congratulations! So, and that was a great time. And we had, um, you know, Rob Huff, uh, world touring car champion at the time, in the car. Uh, was a good friend of mine, and Kevin Gleason, who was the other American in world FIA world touring car championships. Um, so it was just a really good driver lineup and really good fun. So, you know, anytime you can get guys like that in your car, you know, you're, you're getting everything out of the car. And then also to be able to measure yourself against those guys and see where you stack up. And, you know, we were right there on pace. So that's always really good fun. So that for me was, was probably one of my, my favorite cars. In terms of series, it's British Touring Car. Um, not to suck up to you, to, to, to your listeners or anything, but, <laughs> but no, honestly, um, that British Touring Car was, was, 
I would probably say that what got me into into motorsports. I remember, I don't remember what channel it was playing on, but in the, they played during the super touring era. They had the British touring car uh, on the air in the States. And I remember watching it and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, how can these guys do those things in a car? Like, it was just mind blowing to me. And so that kind of sparked really kind of my, my, my more serious interest in motorsport. Um, and then when, you know, I, I actually was able to, to get into the sport, um, you know, my first thing was, all right, I want to be a touring car driver. That's what I want to do. Um, and then to actually get an opportunity to race in the series with guys like Jason Plato and Matt Neal and guys that had been there for, you know, for, mm. from the time I was watching it until now. Um, yeah, that, that to me is, is my favorite series by far. So clearly Audi is an important brand to you, as you said, but it was there any sort of important people or moments throughout your career that you, that you came across that clicked a light bulb and changed things for you? Uh, everybody. I mean, there's so many people and I, like, I, I would start listing them and I, I'd be mad at myself because I, I would have forgotten 20 different people. I would say all the guys at Dodge that got me my start in motorsport, guys like Bob Robb you know, who ran three R racing, who ran that whole program. Um, the fact that they were, you know, gave kind of an untested rookie the opportunity to get in. And then once again, that same company ran the the factory Volvo team I drove for. So they gave me, you know, my second factory drive. So, you know, those guys were fantastic. Um, the guys at actually Honda America were the guys that HPD gave me the opportunity to get into British touring car. They, you know, hooked me up with Tony Gillum who had just purchased one of the Hondas, um, one of the X-Works Hondas. And, uh, you know, so that was my first opportunity to get into British Touring Car. Um, you know, my, my good friends, Roland Pritzker, who was also my business partner at Rotec Racing, that uh, gave me the opportunity to go over and do all of the, the stuff at the VLN and the Nürburgring. Um, all of my German team over at the Nürburgring, I, I literally I could go on for hours and hours. And hours. <laughs> you know, all the guys in British Touring Car, the guys from Bamboo Engineering, when um, those are the guys who built and ran the, the Audi S3 that I ran there. Um, Russell O'Hagan, who really kind of put his heart and soul into that program. And they were also the team that was running the FIA world touring car that I drove. Um, so you know, deep connections with those guys and those guys are, are top shelf. Rob Huff, who brought me over into, you know, all the WTCR stuff. So, I mean, I literally, I could go on for days. We'd, we'd be here for three, four hours before I, and I'd still forget 10 people that, that I would want to bring up. So just everybody who supported me throughout my career and, and um, you know, and there were a lot of them. So you've thrown yourself into quite a lot of things on the track, but away from the track, you've also got stuck into different motorsport related things. For example, your journalism. Could you talk us through some of your off the track activities? Once again, that's an hour long conversation, but um, I, it was, so it was another random path into into the motorsport journalism side of things um and automotive journalism side i uh when when i was doing the the factory volvo team the the program hadn't been announced to the public yet and the guys at jalopnik had written a story about the sro world championship which back then was Prelly world champion sorry was it Prelly? yeah Prelly world championship and they had there was a, there was a mistake in one of the articles and i just wrote a quick letter into the editor real quick and just said hey just to let you know there's a bit of a mistake here and in my signature, it said Rob Holland, factory touring car driver for Volvo. And they reached back out to me, hey, thanks for the correction on the mistake, but what's this whole Volvo touring car program? Because we're, we're closet Volvo fans here. And um, so I kind of wrote them a quick letter back and said, okay, here's what, what's going on. And they said, that's epic. We'd love to do like a big story on it and so on and so forth. And I had helped out um, a guy named Marshall Pruitt, uh, who writes for Racer Magazine here in the US, um, with some coverage at Daytona years ago when I didn't have a ride and I kind of did some interviews with some guys just to kind of help out. And so when the, when the editor wrote back to me, Jalopnik, he said, you know, Hey, could we do this? I said, well, you know what, let me write the story on it. I'll, I'll send you a few things. If you think it's good, you can publish it. If you don't think it's garbage, you know, think it's garbage, just rewrite it. And then, you know, and then there away you go. And so I wrote them a bunch of stuff and he was like, that's epic. We love it. Write another one. And that, that was literally as 2010, 2011, when I started doing that. Um, so we wrote about the whole program with, with uh, the Volvo factory deal. And then it kind of it, it blossomed from there to writing a bunch of other stuff. And then I stood, they actually hired me on to go do all their performance testing because they wanted a pro driver in the wheel to shoot video and all this stuff. So um, I've been writing you know, for Jalopnik for 10 years now and then freelance probably for seven or eight years for 
grassroots motorsports, for race car engineering, um, for uh, Auto Week, Auto Blog, the list goes on and on. So that kind of became a the whole other career um, that I was really expecting again. So I, I, I went from a cyclist to a race car driver to an automotive journalist, all with having no intention of, of doing any of it. Um, and then all of that stuff actually led uh, to filming a show, which I hopefully will air at some point in time, uh, called Faster Race the World. And it was shot for Sky TV UK, um, and it was produced by Warner Brothers. And it was uh, a show where we took uh, six British drivers that were kind of drivers, but not really a lot of experience. And we took them around the world and put them in racing experiences all over the world and competed against each other. And um, I was the co-host and my, the host of the show was uh, Stephen Jones, who is the host for Formula One pre-race shows. Uh, so we had an epic time doing that. So hopefully that'll kind of mark another another random phase in, in my uh, in my ongoing career. That sounds fantastic. I can't <laughs> wait for that to air. You and me both. So as you mentioned there, you've been involved in lots of different aspects across the motorsport world. What has been your experience of diversity across those different areas? Uh, that there is none. I guess it's the elephant in the room when it comes to motorsport. Um, I mean, to be honest, I mean, you, you look at it and both from – uh, a minority standpoint and a female standpoint, motorsport in general is has always been sorely lacking in both, um, and it's unfortunate. And I, you know, I've, like I've said, I've competed all over the world, you know, all the way from you know SCCA in the U.S., um, FIA stuff around the world, and not only do you not experience very many black drivers, but you don't ex- experience almost any minority participation in the sport at all. And I'm talking about, you know, mechanics or team managers or engineers, front office people, uh, back office people, secretaries. And, and you know, it, like I literally walk into the FAA offices and I don't believe there's a single minority in that office. And, and it's, it's unfortunate. Um, and I, I really, it's, it's one of those things where you, it's, it's kind of always in the back of your mind, you know, and I, I it's, it's a weird conversation to have because most of the people that I've met in sport motorsports have been absolutely brilliant people. I mean, just very accepting, doing anything they can to help me. And like I said, I've got hours and hours of people that I'd, I'd love to thank. Um, and 99% of them are, are white males. So I just, so to sit there and, and say racism in motorsports, that's a tough call. But I think beyond a doubt, there's a severe lack of, of diversity in motorsports. Yeah, you actually um, wrote an article on the lack of representation in both motorsport and the automotive industry. And there were some really actually shocking figures within that. Um, So out of the 16,700 car dealerships in in the US, I think it was only 60 are, are black owned. So how did you get to that point of writing that article? Was that something that you were asked to write or was it something that you felt you needed to put out there? Uh, a bit of both. Um, I'd gotten a number of phone calls right after um, kind of everything ticked off uh, by by a lot of the magazines I either you know knew or wrote for or whatever, um, just wanting my opinion on things. And I, I jokingly said that the reason my phone was ringing off the hook was because I was the black guy in the automotive industry. And I, and I realized that that's a very, it's it maybe not a hundred percent true. I mean, there's, there obviously there's some, a lot of minority content creators out there, but um, for what I do and, and the position I have in the industry, I was probably the most prominent of, of everybody. And it, it's, it's mind blowing to me. And I really, it, I never thought about it that way. It was never something that I you know kind of internalized at all. So I really, I, I did, that was, you know, kind of a epiphany for me. And I said, okay, well, uh, if that's the case and I, I need to speak out and say something and I need to let people know, you know, here are the facts based on this, you know, and once again, let the lack of automotive dealerships, but even like, you know, just let, focus on the, on the motorsport side of things. I, I've been in the industry for, for maybe 20 years almost. And I can count the number of black drivers that I've interacted with on both hands and not use all my fingers. Um, and this is across the world. I have never worked with a black engineer. Um, I've had a couple of black mechanics. Um, I've had one female mechanic and she's awesome. She's epic. She, I don't know who she's with right now, but she's, she's with one of the F1 teams. She was with Force India for a while and I think she's moved on from them and is now someplace else. But, I, and you look at this and you, and you go, how is, how is that possible? It's not just saying, hey, I, you know, I race locally here in Colorado and, and I haven't seen anybody. I literally, when it comes to Americans across the globe, I'm one of the only Americans that has literally raced across the globe. 
And to really look at the lack of diversity is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And the question then becomes is what's the reason for that? And I'm not just talking drivers because obviously there, there's a few things that go into drivers. And, and one of the biggest ones is, is access to money. Um, and let's be honest, overall, um, you know, there's, there's not this generational wealth within the black community. And I think that's definitely one of the things where you just say, okay, well, because there's not a lot of money there, there's not you know, the, the access to going in and spending $100,000 a year going karting before you can go into a formula series, which then costs you a million dollars a year, which then you can go up in the ranks. It's just not something that, that's you know, accessible there. And so I kind of I get that. And also, you also look at, okay, the the access to capital outside personal wealth, you know, sponsors and access to sponsors. Well, a lot of minorities don't know how to go after sponsors. And because maybe there's not that connection with, you know, your father does business with a, a bigger company that maybe then has an interest in sponsoring your kid in motorsports because they like motorsports, those connections just aren't there. So all of that, all of those arguments are incredibly valid. So, um, so I don't have a problem with that. Where I start, things start falling apart a bit is, is that, okay, well, what about mechanics? There are yeah. tons of black mechanics across the world. How come there are almost none in motorsports? Um, secretaries, you know, there are black secretaries, millions of them. Why are there none in any of the front offices I have ever walked into in motorsports? And yeah. you go down the line and you go, then you have to say there is a problem because of that. And I think that then because is, is what is it? And at the end of the day, the, I think you end up just coming to the, the conclusion that motorsports isn't very inclusive when it comes to both minorities and women. And how do you think that motorsport can, can be more inclusive? Are there certain strategies or certain frameworks or even initiatives that need to be put into place? Or do we need to start at a certain point, for example, right at the beginning with education? Or is it somewhere else down the line where there needs to be some kind of intervention. So there is that opportunity, access to opportunity for, for people who are from underrepresented groups. Yes, all of that. <laughs> uh, well, so it, it depends on the line you're coming from. And I think that, you know, uh, the pushback I've always seen when it starts, when you, when you focus specifically on black drivers is that, well, hey, there are a lot of drivers out there, period, that, that aren't getting, you know, their fair shot at things. So, you know, this should be based on merit and, and so on and so forth. And, and once again, you have a hard time arguing against it. But I also think that there are doors that are particularly closed to black drivers. And, and that starts at a very early age. That's carding. And, and, you know, I think that the Formula One and, you know, Formula E, MotoGP, all of these series need to do more in order to encourage that participation on a grassroots level. Um, and, I, and I think that's across the board. You know, I, a lot of the, you know, you look at, for example, football here in the United States, you start off and there's peewee football. So you can play that as a kid and then you can go into high school football and then you get recruited by colleges. And then from the colleges, you go on and, and go to a pro. And then there's this, there's this whole ladder system which I just don't really see a lot of uh, in motorsports in general. And I think it's incumbent upon the series to be able to create these ladders and, you know, Formula One being the pinnacle of motorsports, there, there needs to be a ladder system into Formula One. And if you don't create that, I think it becomes as very exclusionary by nature, you know, unless you have millions of dollars to go through the rung, uh, you'll you'll never ever get your opportunity, and I think that's you know that's irregardless of race or or sex or whatever. Um, but I also think in doing that motorsport ladder, you then have the ability to attract and target minorities, and you have the ability to attract and target women, which I then think then broadens that base out, and, and it'll help motorsport in general. But I also think it'll help in terms of attracting those people, those specific demographics into motorsport. But then going back to my original point is, is that spreading out from there, going back, that ladder system is, is a project that, that doesn't start tomorrow and it doesn't create results the next day. It, it starts in a year or two and it creates results in 10 or 12 or 15 years. So, but if you're looking for quicker results, there are tons of black engineers out there and I don't think the industry has done anything to attract them into it. And, you know, and I think that there's, easy things to do to do that. And that's something that could have immediate results within a year or two or three, you know, engineers working up the ladder. And, you know, you, you look at 
Lena Gard and, and all of the, the top engineers that are female engineers that have kind of had to fight their way through this. I, I think the same thing could, could easily be done for, for both females and for minority engineers. That could happen tomorrow. You mentioned there that often there's doors that might be closed for people from underrepresented groups. Did you yourself find coming up in the industry that you came up against that and you faced doors that were closed that maybe weren't closed for some of your peers? Or did you find that a lot of the diversity topic was more internal when you were just aware and conscious that you are one of the few black drivers, for instance, or black individuals within the series that you were racing in? Yeah, it's a combination. Um... You know, like I said, I, 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 the, the drivers I've raced with and the teams I've raced with have been brilliant. And, and I've had a few instances of, of racism throughout my career, both as a cyclist and, and as, a, as a driver. But, but those are isolated incidents. You could easily go, that person is a racist. And therefore, the, you know, the, the, that has nothing to do with motorsports as a whole and the people that are, are involved in it. And, you know, I find that it's a waste of time to, to go after the guys who are racist because it's, it's there. They have their opinion and you're going to spend your whole entire time and energy trying to change their opinion, as opposed to saying there's a problem with the system kind of overall. Let's see what we can do internally to, to change that that system. Um, but but more to your point, I came I came from a very weird background for for uh, you know for for any black person. Uh, my father was a very successful CEO, um, and I grew up uh, in that world. Um, so I grew up with captains of industries and and you know very very well known CEOs. I'd go to their houses and hang out on the weekend. So. Um, so for me to come to come into that world, and that, I think that's one of the kind of big barriers to, to you look at the motorsport industry is that it's a lot of very wealthy people. And I think there's that intimidation factor and that just didn't exist for me at all. I had no problem in talking to anyone about anything and, and wasn't intimidated because someone had a Ferrari or a Porsche or whatever. It just, you know, you were just a guy and you had a nice car and that's so be it. Um, so I think those are doors and barriers that are there that, that might not be visible to most people, but they are definitely doors and barriers. Um, you know, being able to talk to these people and approach them and go, okay, look, um, you know, here's who I am and here's what I can do to help your motorsport career and coaching or, or advice or team ownership or whatever. Um, so I, so those, those doors for me really didn't exist as much, but they are, they are doors that are there. I think there's, I mean, there's, there's it's a very difficult topic to figure out how you go about knocking those doors down because it's just a barrier that, that it's discriminatory, but not intentionally. So it's just, it happens to be a barrier. Um, skipping back a little bit, but still obviously connected to the, the diversity chat where you mentioned obviously coming from America over to Britain uh, to race in the British touring cars. Mm -hmm. Did you notice a difference between um, the, the two countries in terms of how you were treated as perhaps a black driver? Obviously coming into the British touring cars, you were the first American um, to, to race in that series, but also the first black driver to race in that series. Uh, were you aware of that at that time? No. Did that make a difference? So here's the, it's, it's very bizarre. I had no idea. And it, it's so this goes to a much longer conversation, but I, I've never really promoted myself as a black driver. I'm just a driver and I happen to be black and, and you know, and if people took inspiration from that, then I was happy and, and you know, I, I didn't hide the fact, or, but I didn't promote it either, which I think is problematic because I, I don't think I inspired as many people as I could have had I promoted it. But I had no idea I was the first black driver in British touring car until I think it was last year, Lewis Hamilton, uh, tweeted out or sent out a thing saying congratulating Nick on being the first black driver and all of a sudden my Twitter feed blew up and everyone everyone's like wait a second, weren't you didn't you precede Nick by more than three years and I was like well yeah I, but I had no idea so it was a total mistake and it's, it's all good but um, you know it, it wasn't anything that I, I pushed or promoted I, I, I don't come in with you know that like, okay, I'm a black driver and you have to treat me as such. I, I'm a good driver and, you know, treat me as a good driver and we'll, everyone will get along fine. Um, it's actually very funny that I, I, I say this is that, that the two of the first black mechanics that I worked with in, in uh, any form of motorsport were actually in the UK um, when I was racing with Tony Gillum. And, and it was, it was funny. It was one of those things that struck me at the time. I was like, I just realized I've never worked with a black mechanic before. Um, and they're great guys and they did a fantastic job. Um, but it, it is, um, then it, I guess it speaks to the, the, the bigger difference between, um, I guess the history of blacks in, in the U S and the history of blacks in the UK. And I think 
racism or systemic racism is slightly different in the U.S. than it is in the U.K., mainly because our economy, when we started as a country, was founded on slavery. Um, and there were a lot of laws and rules that were put in place in order to keep, even, even after slavery ended, but to keep slaves basically indebted to, um, to their masters. Um, and that's, that's, that, that history kind of continued on and, and those rules never really got erased. They got changed a little bit and shifted around, um, which then brings us to today and, and the issues that the U.S. has with systemic racism. Whereas you look in the UK and obviously the, 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 the UK, the government actually bought slaves their freedom. Um, and I think that's just a different um, uh, understanding or pathway, I guess, to, to where we are today. So it's, it's a very interesting conversation and one that's, that's very, um, you have to understand the difference and there's a very fine difference there, but it is a difference. Yeah, I think that's actually um, a really important point because I think a lot of people aren't aware of that difference. And like you said, the system in the US, it's a lot more ingrained. Um, and even though slavery has been abolished, it's still weaved its way into everyday life through other laws and other ways of representing itself. Um, and that, I suppose, is also one of the things that can hamper the generational wealth aspect of it that you mentioned, especially in the US. You know, it, it's something that trickles down and down and down. Um, but then you also mentioned that you felt like you never really had to present yourself as a black driver and you never really, you know, came into the sport like, I'm I'm the black driver, like, you know, here's the first black driver from BTCC, <laughs> but that you could have done that and maybe you would have inspired more people. Do you think that that is something that people from underrepresented groups should be conscious of, that they, that they I don't want to say a responsibility, but that they have that power? Or do you think that, it should be something that comes from everyone and it shouldn't fall on the shoulders of yourself or other underrepresented groups to drive that because there's, there's two opposing arguments with that. Yeah. Um, I think everybody has to take responsibility. I mean, I think you can't just sit there. I don't think you can sit there and point fingers and go, it's the system. The system is broken. And until you fix the system, we can't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, I think you, you can do both I think you can say the system is broken and it needs to be fixed and there's a lot of issues with that. But I also think you can then take charge and say, well, I'm going to do what I can while I can to, to help move things along in that direction. Um, and and it's, it's funny, like, you know, you, you look at all of the Black Lives Matter movement and things, and I've always thought myself to be a very socially conscious person. I mean, you know, I've gone through things as, as a black male that I know that my white friends haven't had to go through. We've had these conversations. Um, but, but then I also had to really self-reflect and go, well, I, as a black male, probably haven't done as much as I could have in, in promoting myself as a black driver to potentially get more minorities interested in motorsports and go, guys, look, sure, there are barriers to come in here, but actually, once you come in the door, you'll find it a very inclusive and very welcoming place. But it's getting in the door that's the, that, that's the hard part. And, you know, then you have to look at yourself as potentially that that doorway or the guy that at least maybe opens that that door and kind of holds it open for the next guy and the next guy after I definitely agree with that and I think that that really feeds into the role models aspect of things and how important role models are but of course we don't have an abundance of underrepresented groups in motorsport we have a few people who can use their voices as much as they can but we don't even have people that represent all underrepresented groups so what else can be done to help that I mean you know you can use your voice as much as you can Lewis can Nick can like all these different people can but it's still a really small bunch of people and like you said there's still women who are massively underrepresented and other groups so how do we push beyond just you guys having to shout really loud well I think that's that's uh, that's the start of it I mean once again I think that the biggest issue um, that you see with this is that everyone wants instant change. Mm -hmm. They want doors to open tomorrow. They want, they want laws to change. They want rules to change. They want all these systems that have been put in place to change tomorrow. And I think the reality is this is not going to happen. And I think that anyone who thinks that that is going to happen that way is just going to be massively disappointed. And I, I think that that's, kind of been the issue with a lot of movements in the past in general, um, in, in overall society, that people are going, all right, we're mad now, we want you to change now, and and, um, and it, it doesn't happen. And then because it doesn't happen, the movement kind of peters out, and then eventually people forget about it, and move on to the next thing that, in, their, in their thought. 
and I think that it's the same way in motorsport. I, this is, you know, been around for a hundred years and there are people and organizations that are ingrained in the sport. And I think that you need to do what you can to, to change those. And it, it, once again, it's small change. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's rolling a, you know, a snowball down a hill and yeah, okay. It's still a snowball for, for the first, you know, 20, 30 feet, but hopefully by the time it gets to the end of the hill, it's a massive avalanche that then can, can you know, that can, you know, change and sweep through things and, and get to where we would hope things would be. And I just don't, um, and, and going back, I, you look at Lewis and Nick and myself and uh, Bubba and uh, you know, the, the top names in motorsport, we actually have a pretty big voice, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not like you're saying there's some, you know, backmarker guy that, that is, you know, you're doing things on Facebook, you know, you've got, arguably the most famous motorsport driver in the world and, and probably will go down to history as one of the best saying that, Hey, look guys, there's a big problem here. And then his brother who's disabled saying the exact same thing. And, and me who has, you know, the media stuff and the access that I have to all of that. Um, you know, there, there are some pretty big voices. So, and, and what I would hope is, is that not only does it reach the, the people within the sport, and make them think a little bit, you know, it, it, once again, it's not going to change anyone's 100% their opinion, but it might make them think, well, okay, I, I work with people of all races, I'll do whatever, but I've never reached out to a person of color, or I've never reached out to a woman to kind of say, hey, have you thought about, you know, doing this in motorsport? You're pretty good a mechanic. Why don't you come on? Our team could use someone to fill in on the weekends type of thing. Um, and, and maybe those small changes, if, if one person does that and brings one mechanic, one minority in, you know, as mechanic or, you know, whatever, a tire changer, it, it then opens the paddock up to, to more and more people coming in. And that one black person sees that other black person and goes, well, wait, he did it. Mm-hmm. Oh, why can't I do it? How did you get involved? Da, da, da. And then it just, you know, once again, that's, that's what we need in terms of, you know, looking at it snowballing. Yeah, Rob, I think you're absolutely right there with the exposure that motorsport can allow, you know, seeing people from your underrepresented group or whatever it is, you know, if it's a female or if it's a, an ethnic minority, it's it's having that exposure to seeing those groups. And if you can relate to them saying, oh, okay, I maybe I can do this because I've just seen someone that looks like me doing it. So yeah, I think that's really, really important. You talk there as well about having the responsibility to to make change collectively, not just relying on the system to change. Yeah. Are there any actions that you're going to be taking yourself, either that you might be doing now or have done or would like to do in the future? Yeah, a bunch. Uh, some of the things I've done in the past, there's a, there's a group out of Philadelphia called the Urban Youth Racing School, and it's, it's a brilliant school. They, um, they use motorsports as a, as a carrot and um, a teaching tool to get kids involved in STEM. And they're massively successful. They've been around for 22 years, I want to say now. Um, they've got an amazing success rate, and um, they, they work with some of the top partners in motorsport. They're partners with NASCAR, they're partners with GM, Craftsman Tools, um, and, and they've really done a brilliant job in, in, um, in getting kids excited. And not only, but some of their graduates have actually gone into to NASCAR um, as, as crew people or engineers or whatever. So um, it, it, it's, it's a program that I'd love to see replicated throughout the country and, and maybe throughout the world um, because it, it does give, um, you know, uh, underprivileged kids uh, access to things like this and, and things that they might have not ever had a chance to have uh, even thought about in, in their life. And I think that, that goes back to it. Once again, it's, it's just that seed of thoughts. It's just that, you know, whether or not one of those kids goes into motorsports or not, it's in the back of their head that I could be into motorsports. So maybe it's their kid or maybe it's their friend or maybe it's their relative or whatever. And the more those seeds are spread, eventually they're going to start taking you know, root and, and, and bloom. And I think that's what we have to take a look at. Now, going back to my stuff. So I, I have got some more articles coming out um, on Jalopnik and the drive, um, specifically about, about diversity in motorsports. My, my previous article was more about the automotive industry as a whole. Um, but I want to focus on motorsports and, and have a lot of the same conversations that, that, that we're having here right now. Um, and it, I want it to be targeted to the average reader, but I also hope when I publish it on social media that some of the people that I've worked with before um, will read it and understand that, you know, when someone says that, that you know, motorsports isn't very diverse, 
we're not calling them racist. We're not saying that you individually are racist and, you know, because motorsports isn't diverse and you work in that industry. What we're saying is, is that things over the history of motorsports have basically led to an underrepresentation of minorities in the sport. And the question I want to ask is, why aren't we doing more? I mean, the one thing that I always hear in motorsports is, is that, well, there's so many other things for people to do these days that motorsports driving, you know, drying out a little bit and it's not as popular as it was back in the, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, the, you know, looking at NASCARs, you know, well, they're falling attendance numbers. Well, you go, okay, if your attendance numbers are falling and your viewership isn't as much, there's a whole bunch of people that you haven't even talked to about this. Why aren't you, why aren't you going after that group of people? Um, MotoGP is probably the biggest offender in that. You know, everyone kind of goes, oh, well, maybe, you know, black people maybe aren't interested in motorsports so much and racing cars or whatever. There are more black people on motorcycles than any other, I, I think, you know, minority at all. I mean, they are, they are motorcycle crazy. And I don't know why MotoGP hasn't gone. Like, look, there's a huge population out there that could explode our fan base. Why are we going after this? And um, it's very frustrating. So I think from, from that aspect, those are the people that I want to target. And I think hopefully those are the people that, that you know, you plant that seed once again. And, and those are the people that could really affect change in the sport. You mentioned there, um, you know, going out and talking to people that you've worked with in the past and planting the seed, not just in motorsport, but on the wider scale as well with some of your articles. But sometimes when you plant the seed or when you put these messages out, you can get quite a lot of backlash and people getting quite defensive, people being, you know, even abusive sometimes. <laughs> and for people that want to get into the sport who maybe aren't so used to the public eye or trolling and things like that, how do they cope with that? I mean, I would imagine that it would be quite off-putting if you're someone that's not very thick-skinned. Yeah, um, the article I wrote for The Drive was was kind of that. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of trolls, a lot of people who were just not receptive of the message. Um, fortunately, I mean, fortunately, my editor there was the editor of Jalopnik. And he, Jalopnik and, and, you know, Geo Media and all of that, they're very, very, very liberal. Um, and my editor at The Drive is like, I don't really care. He's like, this is messages that people need to hear. And if they don't want to read our site because of it, then don't read our site. But we're going to continue to do this. Um, the articles I'll do for Jalopnik are, are actually uh, more engaging um, because once again, it's that it's a very, very liberal site and uh, you end up with, with some very good comments. You're, you're going to end up with trolls. You're always going to end up with trolls, whether they believe in what they're saying or not. They're just people who love to stir the pot a bit. Um, but the great thing about, you know, you look at a site like Jalopnik that they are, uh, the commentators will then team up on against the trolls and, and then it makes you feel a lot better that, okay, look, there's some really decent people out here that get it and want to understand and want to help. So, um, I think you just have to ignore the trolls. There's just nothing you can do. And like I said before, there are, are, are people in this world that are just racist. They, they do not like me or other black people because of the color of our skin and they're, you know, or, or misogynist because they don't like women because they're women. It, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to change their mind. And it, it's a, it's almost a waste of my energy. Um, I think you just need to ignore and marginalize those people and, and, and marginalize their, their voice and their message. And I, you, you do that by basically being louder and being more well-known and more popular than they are. And I think that's, that's, you know, those are things that I have access to that Lewis and Nick and, and Bubba and all of those guys have access to. And I think that's the, you, you just drown out their voices. I think that's, I think that's very important advice for anyone sort of considering coming into the industry and who might be um, sort of worried about that backlash. Because as you say, Ariana, like you look at the, po you look at posts talking about diversity on social media and you look at some of the comments, especially um, like when Lewis Hamilton put, will put something out, looking at those comments, it's, it, yeah, it's not nice, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. And it's a conversation that those within the industry need to have as well. It's not just those on the outside. It it starts on the inside because that's where the, the issue is. But going forward, maybe five, 10 years and even longer than that in the future, Rob, what do you think uh, the motorsport landscape will look like with regards to diversity? How do you envisage it? Well, I'm hoping that it's it's substantially more diverse. Um, once again, I, I think that you're still looking at a, a long-term project, uh, but I'd like to see 
more minorities and more women in key roles in the industry. Uh, once again, I think, I think in that, it, 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 there's the top-down effect. If, if you've got minorities in key roles, they're more likely to be aware of this as an issue. And then at that point in time, it's okay, well, let's, let's, you know, we, we've got an opening, we've got some qualified candidates and they're all, they're all qualified. And, you know, we could hire a white guy, we could hire a woman, we can hire an African-American, we, you know, and, and at least the thought is there that we are underrepresented and that, okay, well, let's, let's look at trying to change that representation. And, and I think in, in 10 or 15 years, if, if what, I've done and Lewis and Nick and everybody have done uh, is successful, then I think we'll have a, a more diverse paddock. Um, do I think we'll, we'll have the representation um, that sh it should be? Probably not. But I do, I do think that the people overall in motorsports are, are, are well-meaning. And, you know, I think if their eyes are now open to this, they will see this as potential problem. But I also think they'll see this as, as a potential for expanding motorsports, you know, creating a different fan base, you know, bringing more minorities and bringing more women in. And then I think that if, if you really look at it, I think this is potentially where Liberty Media's ownership of Formula One can come into play in a pretty big way, is, is obviously the previous regime um, was, was not the most um, sensitive to those issues, <laughs> put it in the most politically correct way. Um, and I think he, he, you know, intentionally or otherwise probably did more to, to stop that than anybody else um, in motorsport. And I think now that you've got a company like Liberty Media, they're, they're in it for the business. And if they see that, hey, look, there's, there's a potential to make more money by bringing in another group of people, I think they're actively going to go for it. And I think that's why we're seeing kind of some of the, you know, the, the things that, that Lewis has kind of been able to do this year is I think because Liberty Media is there. I think if, if, if it was Ethelstone back in charge, this would not have gone anywhere. And uh, regardless of how powerful Lewis is within the sport. Um, so, so hopefully that, that means that there is going to be some real change and F1 obviously being the pinnacle of motorsports. If you can start change there, hopefully it, it, uh, it goes throughout all of motorsports as a whole. Another interesting perspective from a driver within the industry and an important point that Rob raised about the lack of representation within motorsport, using the example of black people working in the same roles outside of the industry, but they're few and far between within motorsport, in Rob's experience at least. And we have to question why that is. Yeah, it's not like it's in one country either. It's worldwide and it's across every category and series. I think it's also important to consider the commercial benefits a diverse sport can have or bring not just thinking about workforce. It's a fair point he raised about MotoGP not taking advantage of tapping into a fan base that they have the opportunity to target. It's not a case of certain people not liking motorbikes. They are there and they do. Exactly, Steph. Rob also highlighted that in the US, unconscious bias and racism is ingrained across society in laws, systems and institutions. And that's part of the reason why this is such a difficult issue to tackle and why it's so important that we all do our bit to help drive the change, not always relying on the systems which are in place because sometimes they can be flawed themselves. Yeah, very good point that he raised there. For the automotive article we touched on that Rob wrote for The Drive, you can check this out via the link in the episode description. Be sure to follow Rob on Twitter and Instagram on at robholland3 and us too on Instagram at wearedrivenbydiversity. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe, rate and review. 